Today's scripture reading is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 30. The parable of the ten virgins and the parable of the talents. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will be not enough for us and for you, go rather through the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also had had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also had received one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together. Oh, precious Lord Jesus, we have sung that you have overcame, and today we want to live in the reality of that. If we know that to be true, then the way in which we live our lives should be radically different and will show up every single day in small but very important decisions that we make. And I pray today that you would elevate the value of spiritual faithfulness and that in doing so today lord jesus that we would know about your faithfulness 
And also be reminded that you are a Savior and a Lord who is worthy of all of our life. As long as we live, every ounce of effort and energy we could ever give you, you are worthy of it all. And so we ask you now to use your word, which is your communication to our hearts as a, as a beautiful love letter telling us what we need to be like, but also what you are like. So meet with us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For the last month, we've been dealing with the subject of the second coming of Jesus. And over and over through Matthew 24, we've been seeing really the same theme come up again and again. And really, it is just this theme of be ready. Uh, Jesus is calling his disciples to be prepared for his second coming. And then also, he's calling all of us to also be ready for his second coming. He's warned them about getting overly enhanced or or attracted, if you will, to the... um, the Temple Mount, and they were so enamored with their own worship. He cautioned them about uh, their personal readiness for a season of difficulty that they would come into. He he warned them about um, what it would be like to enter into a a season of tribulation, of challenge, of suffering. And he also warned them about false prophets and that he was going to return, Jesus would return, in a moment that they wouldn't expect it, like during the days of Noah, so his return would be. Matthew 24 really summarizes it for us. Jesus says this, Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So the focus of what we've been talking about here is this readiness, this this anticipation, this expectation, um, if you will, that uh, Jesus is going to return. Matthew 24 is designed to get your attention. And now today we need to move beyond just being awake to this reality. We need to move beyond just, okay, he's coming back, be ready. And we need to translate that into some very practical dynamics in our personal lives. And what does it mean to not just understand that he is coming, but to actually be really ready for his return? So the question that we're wrestling with is this, what does it mean to be ready? If you think about various events in your lifetime, it's one thing when you understand that something is coming, it's another that you do something about it. Okay, so you can know that something's coming, but doing something about it is a completely different matter. I remember when we found out that we were going to have twins, and then we went to the Lamaze classes, you know, where you, you learn how to breathe and all that. And so I was an expert at this, you know, whatever that thing was. And, and the, the fact of the matter is, though, I didn't need to use that. We had the bag all packed and all ready because the doctor told us, look, after this particular point in time, those, those boys could come at any moment. And so we had the bags packed and, and we're ready, waiting for my wife's water to break, but... Little did we know she has a womb like Fort Knox. And she, she had those boys in her womb, if you can imagine this, for 39 and a half weeks. Yeah, the boys were 6'7 and 6'11. She was only two centimeters. That was, that was their birth weight, seriously. Uh, maybe their height too, eventually, we don't know. So um, her, her womb was two centimeters away from the office record of the largest womb they had ever seen. I was like, come on, baby, come on, come on, we can do this. Come on, let's take that trophy, you know, let's take that. And she's like... Just get them out. Just get them out, you know? So we, we had the bags packed because we, we got it. Sometime this is going to happen, okay? And then when it happens, we need to, to, be, to be ready. And sometimes in life, it's the simple things that, that make a, a big difference, that you're prepared and you're ready. And you might question, if you're not prepared, did you really get it? If, if, you, if you didn't do the things that were necessary... Did you really understand that this event is going to take place? And 
What Jesus is talking about here today in these two parables is this concept. Expectation should equal preparation. If you really understand, you really expect that something's going to happen, then there's a bunch of things that you should be doing to prepare. And if you don't, then the question is, do do you really understand what's going on? See, there are some things in life that are maybe big problems, but the solutions to them are really just simple daily decisions. For example, um, getting in over your head with debt, there's only one of two ways out. You either increase your income or you decrease your expenses. There's no other solution, even from a nation, right? $14 trillion. The reality is, it's either you increase your income or you decrease your expenses. There's, there's no other way to get around it. If you put on too much weight, the reality is you have to decrease what goes in and you've got to increase what you do to the sound of, uh, or the tune of about a thousand calories a day so you can lose about two pounds a week. And while there's many people who know they need to get out of debt, and maybe others who are like, look, i got to lose some weight, the fact of the matter is, is it requires hundreds of daily decisions that have to be made right in order to be, to, to be able to make any kind of progress. In the same way, the Christian life, as we'll see today, is exactly like that. That there are hundreds of little things that we need to do that result in a daily decision to be faithful. A daily commitment to be a a follower of Christ. And what he's talking about here in these two parables is the fact that if you don't really get into it on a daily basis or a regular basis in terms of spiritual preparedness, then the question is, do you really understand that he's coming back? So, two parables. The the first one is the parable of the ten virgins. And both of these parables turn on two particular verses. The first parable turns on Matthew 25, where it says, And the bridegroom was delayed. So that word delayed is an important word. And then the second parable, the parable of the talents, turns on this phrase in verse 19, after a long time. The, the idea is this, that there's a, a long period of time, there's a delay, and then what you do in the delay indicates if you really are expecting this event to come in the future. So first, the ten virgins. Verse 1 says that the kingdom of heaven is like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. So not unlike our own weddings of today, there were traditions in Jesus' time. And that was that a a husband-to-be or a groom would ask the father, future father-in-law, for a betrothal contract in which he had pledged his love to his daughter and uh, then he would make preparations, be sure he had enough money, prepare a home. And then at a particular date, they would um, commence this wedding feast. And the wedding feast celebration began by the bridegroom, the groom, going to the house of the bride. And then they would have a processional all the way to the wedding feast. And it was a, a great event, kind of like a parade, if you will. So imagine, ladies, you don't just get to walk down the aisle, you get to walk down the streets. You know, you're like, I, I, you know, I'm getting married, getting married, and all your friends are there, and... And so what we see here is this exactly um, is the context of the parable. We see that these bridesmaids were expectantly waiting for the groom to come and for the wedding to begin. So they would all assemble at the house and they're kind of waiting. Sort of like sisters waiting for Mr. Darcy, if you will. Um, some of you guys are like, what? Just ask your wife when you get home. So, so there's ten women, and the text tells us that half of them were only wise enough to make preparations for this event. 
Ten virgins, ten young women, went to the bride's house to wait for the groom to come, but only half of them brought enough oil for their lamps. Now, these lamps, think of them like a stick with a rag on top of them, and then they would take oil and they would soak the rag and then light them. And over time, if you didn't have enough oil, the oil would evaporate. You need to re-oil your lamp, so to speak. And what happens is that when these ten women go to wait for the bridegroom, he's delayed. As a result, half of them, or all of their, their lamps, begin to dry out, and only half of them had made adequate provision. Of course, the bridegroom is a picture of Christ, and his followers, or so-called followers, are those in the parable who are pictured by these women. Verse 6, the foolish women realize that their lack of preparation will mean that they will miss the processional to the wedding feast. You see, what happens is in the, at midnight, when they least expect it, it says the, the cry comes in verse 6, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. So he's coming, he's on the way. And then suddenly the, the girls all begin to scurry around. They start to light their lamps. And one, they're trying to light it. Give me your light. Give me your light. Light, light. It won't light. Ah, I need some oil. Give me some of your oil. And the girl's like, no, 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 no. I only have enough oil for me. What am I supposed to do? Like, well, go to Walmart and buy some. So they, they head off. And, and they, they're running as fast as they can because the, the groom is coming. And if they're not part of the wedding party, they're going to miss the whole thing. Sort of like what happens awkwardly when you, like, come in late to a wedding. And you're, like, walking down with the bride. That's just not a good thing. And... <laughs> And so they're, they're hurrying to buy their oil, and verse 10 tells us about the sad result. Look at it. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. So what happens here is because of their lack of preparation, they, they miss the entire wedding event. Now think of this. They had done so many things right. They got the right date. They probably got the right clothes to hang out with the right people, but they forgot to do one really important thing. Bring extra oil. Some commentators suggest that the problem of these women was they thought, ah, I've been been to lots of weddings. I know when the bridegroom will come, that they're way too overconfident. Verse 11. Remarkably, they knock at the door, but they're still not given entrance. Afterward, the other virgins came also and saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and we have heard this statement before in Matthew seven twenty one. Truly, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. So what he's saying here is that, that by their lack of preparation, here's where the parable turns to really a, a message. By their lack of preparation, they were giving evidence that they really didn't know who the bridegroom even was. And then it ends with a pretty strong warning. Verse 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Now he's saying this in the same way that he's talked before about being ready, but in this case the readiness is different. The the word watch means more than just look for or expect or I'm going to come in an unexpected moment. Rather, it's a present active imperative indicating that it's a command that should be continually practiced. So don't just like change your mind and start looking. It means every day you need to live your life in light of the fact that Christ is going to return, that there is an accounting that will come. The word is used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.13 this way, Be watchful, he says. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of that in the message, says this, Keep your eyes open. Hold tight to your convictions. Give it all you've got. Be resolute 
and love without stopping. So the point of this parable then is to do more than just look for the bridegroom. The point is, is that we ought to be ready by not forgetting to do some very important but basic things. You have the most gorgeous wedding dress in all the world. You can have a great outfit, lots of friends, be there 15 minutes early, but if you don't have oil and the bridegroom's late, you're in trouble. Future expectation should lead to daily preparation. That's the point. Now, the parable of the talents. The next parable makes this point with greater clarity. By setting the stage with a wealthy man who entrusts his property to three servants. Each of these servants receives a talent. Now, a talent is an Old Testament um, measurement of weight estimated to be between 50 and 75 pounds. So he's given them talents, and the talents, the money, weighs 50 to 75 pounds. So when you apply it to money in Jesus' day, it describes a large sum of money, about 6,000 denarii. Most day laborers would have to work 19 years to earn one talent. So some estimate that this one talent could be the equivalent of $800,000. So so the, the, the man here is fairly wealthy, and he entrusts to one servant five talents. Do the math. That's four million. To another, he entrusts two talents, 1.6 million. And to another, the last servant, he entrusts one talent. And the extent of his stewardship is meant to show here both his wealth, his generosity, the giftedness of each servant, because it's likely that one servant was given five because he could handle five, another was given two, another one one, in light of their level of ability and responsibility. And in the end of the day, the amounts are simply meant for you to go, wow, that's a lot of cash. And he entrusts this to them. Now, each servant responds in a different manner. Verse 16 and 17, the servants with five talents and two talents put that money to use. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So he discovered what most of you should know, and that is that money has potential to grow. It also has potential to disintegrate, but it has the potential to grow. And so he took that money, and he used it, and he doubled his money. He made five more talents. Verse 17, so also he who had two talents made two talents more. So in both cases, these servants took their master's resources and the result was that they invested them, they used them, they put their money to work and they doubled what their master had given them. The third servant, however, responds very differently and he's really the point of the parable. Verse 18, But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. It's interesting. He takes this money and he buries it so that it would be hidden. So that money is not going to do anything. It's not going to grow. He won't lose anything, but it's not going to produce anything either. And so what we have here is we have three different servants, two of whom put money to work and one who buried it in the ground. Now the turning point of the parable comes in verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So the master returns, long delay, like we saw in the parable of the ten virgins, and he inquires how they turned out with his financial resources, and what we find here is that he's overjoyed with two of them and extremely 
disappointed with another. Begin with the conversations with the five talent servant and the two talent servant. Verse 21. Let's go back to verse 20. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, a little, four million dollars. Okay? And I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So the idea is he's given him something, he's proven his trustworthiness, and therefore the master now blesses him with even more. The same thing happens with the two-talent servant. Verse 22, And also he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master says the same thing. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, the accounting of the one-talent servant changes the whole tone of the parable. Look at verse 22. And he who also had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made... Or, sorry. uh, Verse 24. He also, who had received the one talent, there it is, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. That's an important point right there. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. It's a loaded statement. Here this servant is, is motivated by fear. He's afraid of either the master or losing the money in terms of it not growing or the master being disappointed with him. And so in his mind, he's just going to take the safest route possible, which in the end of the day isn't safe at all. And what happens here is this servant simply gives the master back what had been given to him. And the point of the master giving the servant the money wasn't so that he could just give it back to him. So what's the problem here? The problem is this, is that the one-talent servant is filled with fear, and the effect is that he makes his talent unproductive. He took a potentially useful talent and made it useless. He took something that could grow and have impact, and he made it static. The result was the master was not happy. Verse 26, the master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. In other words, if you were scared of losing the money, at least you could have put it in the bank. So the issue of why he's hiding it is not because he's worried about the investment losing its value. It has something else that's going on here. It's not a concern about the money. It is that this one-talent servant, listen, is actually concerned about protecting himself. He's so afraid of some level of failure that he fails completely. He's so afraid to be able to risk anything that in the end, he risks everything. Verse 28. Jesus then says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. And then this 
phrase, verse 29, interesting, it's used in other parts of Matthew. This is like the parable or the, um, the king, a kingdom ethic. It shows up when Jesus talks in parable form. For to everyone um, who has will more be given, and he who and uh, he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, once again, friends, here we see the upside-down logic of Jesus. If you try and save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for Christ, you'll find it. The implication is being, you're going to lose your life one way or another. The question is whether or not you're going to lose it for yourself and be in disaster, or whether or not you're going to lose it for Christ and suddenly figure out the beauty of what that means. The upside-down logic of Jesus means that there are those who risk everything, even their own lives, out of love for the Master, and those folks will be abundantly blessed, but those who live for themselves, even though they say they live for the Master, give evidence that they really do not know Him, love Him, or live as if He's really coming back. And that's the point. For whoever, Jesus says, Matthew 16, 25, will save his life, will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, expectation of who Jesus is leads to particular preparation. It means that knowing that Christ is who He is and that He is coming again should change how you live this afternoon and tomorrow morning. The parable of the ten virgins, the foolish virgins failed to adequately prepare thinking that waiting for the groom would be easy enough. They'd done it before. In the parable of the talents, the wicked servants failed to adequately prepare because thinking that the waiting would be too costly. And here is where many people fall into two traps. They either have a cavalier attitude, like, ah, not a big deal, I'm so much better than most people. I know lots of people that are horrible sinners, I'm not like like them. Or on the other extreme, those who are like, this is just way too hard, all these rules, oh, these rules, all this stuff. God tells me, can't do this, can't do that, ah, I'm just going to do what I want. And yet people on both ends of the perspective, and both of them are equally foolish and tragically condemned. Their, Their actions give evidence that they really don't know who Jesus is. So where does that leave us? What, what, what is this, what is this saying? Here's, here's what I want for you to realize this morning. That what Jesus is calling for here is he's calling for faithfulness. He's calling for the kind of perspective where you take the talent that God has given you and because of who Christ is, you live out a life that's pleasing to him, not in order to pay him back, but because of the reality of who he is and the fact that he's going to return. Knowing that your life is not lived absent of accountability. Paul, in... 1 Corinthians 15 says this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You know, whenever I read that verse, I, I kind of smile because that verse was written on the nursery wall in my church when I grew up. You said, it's not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. You get that? So, <laughs> By the way, that's not going to go in our new building because it's wrong. That's not what it's saying. I'm talking about nursery, right? But it's kind of cute. But anyway, so in a moment... I was free. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. What's he talking about here? He's not talking about nursery. He's talking about the second coming of Jesus. That's what he's talking about. 
And then later on, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Listen, he's calling us here to steadfastness, immovableness, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Because there are things that you are doing, and when you do them in the name of the Lord, they're never a waste of time. The problem with this, though, is that we treat faithfulness as if it's a junior varsity activity. It's sort of like the last thing that you compliment somebody on when they really can't do anything else, right? Well, yeah, he's not a very good speaker, but at least he's faithful, you know? So, okay, he shows up, right? It's, it's what you talk, it's, it's how you describe your dog that's been around for, you know, like 30 years and it's, you know, kind of walking around and you're like, look at old faithful, come here old faithful, right? He, he won't catch a ball, he won't do anything else, he smells, but he's faithful, right? Which means he won't die, that's what it means, right? Or your car that you've got, you know, it's a, it's a 1968 Pinto, and it just, it's green, and it's ugly, and, but you know what? It gets you back and forth to work, and you're like, it's faithful. It's a, it's a faithful vehicle. And so we use this word faithful often in sort of like, hey, you know, at least he shows up. If you can't do anything else, at least you can be faithful. At least you can be there. And yet what, what I want you to realize is that faithfulness is a really, really important element of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. See, the problem with the Christian life is it's so daily. It is. It's so daily. You get up, you spend time with Jesus, you go to work, and you figure out every day how to be able to follow Jesus. You take the Word and you live it out in small ways, in your neighborhood, in how you drive, how you take care of your money, how you treat your kids, how you work out the context of your marriage, and, you, and, and every single day you just figure out how to be able to take what God has given you in terms of your talents and abilities, and you begin to apply that in various ways in your life. It means that you get over the fact that you don't have everything, all the talents and abilities that you would want to have. You ever feel like that? I mean, I serve with a great team. There's times we're talking around the room, and I'm just like, man, I wish I, was, wish I had like the personality of Dale and... I wish I could care like Don Bartimus. I could play the piano like Eric. I wish I had the, 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 the insight of, uh, of a Bruce Smith. And look at all those things. You ever have like, am I the only one who ever feels that way? <laughs> you see somebody and you're like, man, I wish I had that kind of personality. I wish I had that kind of personality. Here's the deal. You've been given the gifts that God has given you. Get over yourself. Okay? <laughs> just get over yourself. And just be like, you know what? These are the talents that I've been given. This is the stuff that God has entrusted to me, and therefore I have to simply use the gifts that God has given me for His glory and for the good of His church. So let me flesh this out for you. If you were to live out a daily Christian life, here's some things just to think about. First, it would mean that you would be decisive. It means that the fundamental commitment of your life is, I belong to Jesus. That you, you wake up and say, Jesus, today I am yours. And by the way, if you've never... Ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You can't even say this first thing. You're not His. And that's why the first thing has to be taken care of in terms of your own sinful, dark heart. It begins by saying, Lord, I'm yours. Secondly, I'm available. Lord, I'm ready. Bring hard people into my life today. Bring it on, Lord. Bring it on. Bring me hard kids. Bring me challenging situations. Lord, I am ready. I want to do your will. Third, it means that you say, Lord, I'll try. I'll try. It means that I'll, I'll take some risk here. In, 
A number of years ago, my wife and I were foster parents, and it's remarkable. And I know what people are saying when they say this, but it just there was something about me that was like, oh, when they say this. We've had Christians say to us, you know what, I, I just could never be a foster parent because I don't, I don't think I could handle like what happens when they take the kids away. And the thought in my head, and I know what they're saying, maybe they're not called to that, and not everybody is, but what if every Christian did that? And, and what if everyone never took any risk for the glory of God because I don't want to be hurt? That's what the definition is. I don't want to be hurt. You see, that's what the man did. He buried his treasure because he didn't want to be hurt. There are risky, hard people that God wants you to love. There are really difficult things that he wants you to do, things that are hard, that are challenging, and that nobody else in this world will do them unless they knew they were eternally secure in Christ. And that is what we are called to do. And therefore, we are called to do it over and over and over and to be faithful. We're to do it in a loving manner, to say, Lord, I do this because I love you, and I'm doing this out of love for you, and we do it in a way that is yielded, meaning, God, you're going to ask me to do some hard things, but at the end of the day, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you that you know what you're doing. So there's a lot of people who live out this daily Christian life thing, um, but today I wanted just to give you a, a live example of somebody who, in my life, I've seen live this out. I first met uh, Dr. Charles Smith um, through our search and recognition process here at the church. Um, Dr. Smith will celebrate his 89th birthday this year and uh, has been involved in all sorts of ministry in this church. And I just wanted to ha- have you hear a little bit of his heart. So, Charles, why don't you come? One of the things that I love about this man is um, nearly every time that he and I have a conversation... He usually tells me about some kind of burden that he has on his heart for somebody. And invariably, he ends up um, getting a little teared up because he loves Jesus and loves people. And that's just amazing. He's just started on me right here, so it's good. It's good. Uh, you know, some men, when they get, actually most men, when they get old, get grumpy. Just newsflash, guys. Um, there's other men who, as they grow older, become sweeter and fall more in love with Jesus. And uh, what I want you to see today is, one, the beauty of who Jesus is and also the beauty of Jesus lived out in an 88-year-old man's life. Um, so that some of you would leave today and say, you know what, I want to be like Jesus and I want to be like Charles. Those are my two goals in life. I want to be faithful all the way to the end. And I hope that that would be your heart today. So Charles had a Bible study in his uh, home in uh, college. I want you to tell him a little bit about that and uh, what you did and how you used your home for the glory of God with a number of college students. Well, I wasn't in college. It was after college. Uh, Dr. Roy Blackwood and I had a burden for meeting the needs of college students during the summer and helping them grow helping him form a biblical worldview so he could go back to campus and handle courses in biology and sociology and psychology and these things that were so difficult for Christians to to uh, handle. And so we uh, set up a program of for 13 weeks each summer for 13 years, and we, seven of them were at our home, were evangelistic to reach the unbelieving friends of these uh, Christians who came. The other six were at Roy Blackwood Student Center to uh, teach them how to study the Word, how to witness, and uh, how to pray, and things like that. And so we would have them in our home. We have we have tennis court. They play basketball and volleyball and dodgeball and things. Then we bring them in and have a meeting. We bring in the best speakers we could find any place in the country: Walt Kaiser, Norm Geisler, um, Ken Conzer, people like that. And they, they really uh, could reach college students. They reach thinking people. And I think that's so important to, to get people who are anxious to grow. And uh, 
We bring them down to our rec room. It was about twice the size of this platform, but you get 160 people down there, and they're wall-to-wall, and, but they didn't seem to care being close together, uh, sitting on a piece of carpet on the floor, and uh, it was just a real thrill. One night, Paul Little uh, spoke, and we had 265 at night. Uh, we're going to get 165 downstairs, so the others would have to listen and worship, too, on the second floor. <laughs> We just had an intercom. We didn't have a wall television. That night, I noticed at 2 o'clock, he, his light was still on. So I asked him the next morning, uh, what's the matter? Couldn't you sleep? He said, no, I was reading Packer's book, <laughs> Knowing God. I just couldn't put it down. Well, the next chapter is, four days later, he was in Canada, and he had an, accident, an auto accident and was killed. And immediately, he knew God better than Packer did. But this is a man who really had a heart for God and for students. It was real fun. About a year ago, Charles, I was walking around the um, side of the, um, the foyer area, and I saw a, a little booklet that, or a book that you had um, uh, published on discipleship. And I know that discipling men in particular is a, a personal passion of yours. Tell us a little bit about why, for you, that's been a part of uh, what you've done, discipling over 20 men, and, and now I think you've got seven men that you're discipling presently. Um, why, why is that such an important passion of yours? Well, I guess I look at my own spiritual autobiography, and although I was raised in a Christian home, when I plotted it on a graph, I was almost baseline for 10, 12 years after becoming a Christian at the age of eight. And... Uh, I realized how important it is to to meet with a more mature Christian who can help you grow, help you get into the Word, teach you how to study. If you just tell a person to read a Bible, they'll start at Genesis and Leviticus, they'll throw it away. But you you have to, to teach them how to read it and study it and apply it to their own lives. And uh, so that's that's the main part of my. Uh, discipling is getting people into the Word, but dealing also with subjects like how to know the will of God, uh, how to handle your finances, how to have victory over sin, things like that, but just face-to-face talking with individual men. So even next weekend, your son is bringing out a group of students uh, from another church, and tell, tell our folks what you're doing next weekend. <clears throat> well, uh, he's here today. And uh, he, he works with young people at the Steve DeWitt's church in Crown Point. Some of you know Steve DeWitt used to be here. And uh, he's bringing down a half a dozen fellows and uh, going to Brookside in the morning and then uh, playing basketball at Monon Center in the afternoon. And in the evening, I'll be talking to him about how to know God's will in your life. So pray for us. So if you could tell our church, and particularly young men here, uh, it's on my heart today, uh, Tell us why you think uh, faithfulness is important. Give, give us a charge from, from your heart, Charles, about the importance of faithfulness to Christ. Well, I knew when you were going to be studying this chapter, it would either be on uh, perseverance or faithfulness or something like that. And, and I thought, uh, uh, I used to, to teach my son, whatever you do, do it with all your might. And uh, it almost cost him his life. He was running a Chicago marathon and uh, uh, he wanted to qualify for Boston. There were 20,000 people running, and he did finish in the top 50 and qualified. But at the finish line, he collapsed, and the paramedics had to give him an IV to revive him. And uh, I should have caught on that something was wrong in his heart, and I didn't. 
And a few years later, he died because that hole in his heart, a clot went through that hole and he died. Uh, his birthday was today. And he was in a ministry. And, but uh, he used to say to me, Dad, finish strong. <laughs> Excuse me. He, and I think he had a tear in his eye. He was so earnest. Finish strong, Dad. And uh, that's burned my heart to... You don't retire when you're 65 or 88. But we're told to... Well, two things come to mind in Ephesians Ephesians 5.8. Find, find out what is the Lord's will. But in Ephesians 1, it says... We've been predestined to be conformed to the, to, uh, oh, excuse me, to be uh, conformed to, to his glory, and the glory of his grace in one place. Three times in that chapter, we were to, to live daily to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen. Amen. So here's the charge, church, and that is that I want you at 88, soon to be 89 years old, to have the same level of passion, emotion, and heart that you would in your life, ignite in hundreds of other people a passion to follow Jesus like Charles has. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord. Thank you, man. Thank you. So here's my question, church. What is it that God is calling you to do? What gifts has he given you? What, what beauty has he shown you in terms of who he, are, who he is? What, what burden has he laid on you? What risk is he asking you to take? What, what urgency in terms of his second coming? What, what does that mean for you? And then how does that translate every single day? Jesus doesn't say, Well done, thou good and flashy servant. Well done, thou good and famous servant. Well, good thou, good and popular servant. He says, well done, you good and faithful servant. I want to elevate faithfulness today. In the midst of a quick fix, Google search, microwave culture, I want to take faithfulness and just tell you, faithfulness is awesome cool. It is something that Jesus wants you to take the talents and abilities that you have and to be faithful all the way to the end. Anybody can simply be a quick flash in the pan, but there's... There's, there's few that can last all the way to the end. And the point of the parable of both the ten virgins and the talents is simply this, that we ought to be the kind of men and women who have hearts that beat for faithfulness. I was thinking about this this week. I was walking out of my office and I saw a mom waiting for her kids um, to come out of school. And she had a little baby in the back seat and the baby was... was uh, talking and waving its hands. I waved at the baby. And then I saw mom in the front seat. And it was kind of a funny scene because she was there like this. She's <sighs> totally sacked out waiting for her kids. And I got in the car and I just, I just thought of what a mom deals with every day. She gets up. She makes food for her kids. She gets their clothes. She cleans them. She moves them back and forth from school. And she does it over and over and over. She, she does all of these things. She puts the words of Christ into the hearts and lives of her kids. She tries to respond in a godly way. She's picking up Cheerios. She's cleaning up diapers. She's doing all these things. And I found myself thinking, praise God for a faithful mom. Praise God for faithful dads. Praise God for faithful people who right now are taking care of your children so they can learn the word of God 
while you're here. Praise God for nursery workers who spent all week with kids and yet for some crazy reason said, I want to spend more time with kids. I mean, think of that. That is crazy and thank God they're there, right? And they're, they're faithful and they show up. So here's the call. It's, it's actually fairly simple. It is this church. I want to call you to a renewed passion for faithfulness because Jesus is coming again and he is worthy of a lifetime. Yes, 89 years worth of service. Father, I pray that you would birth from us men and women whose hearts yearn to be able to finish strong. You are coming again, and so we pray that you would help us to be the kind of people who are faithful, just like you are right now, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us courage and strength and endurance to be faithful all the way to the end. And thank you for people in our life like Charles who help motivate us that it's possible to follow Jesus 89 years strong. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Read this with me, will you? Together. Lord, help me to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in your work, knowing that in you my labor is not in vain. I'm yours. I'm ready, I'll try, I'll do this because I love you, and I'll trust you. Help me to be faithful. God bless you. I love you. If you need someone to pray with, there'll be some folks up here afterwards. Love to be able to spend some time with you. Have a wonderful day.